achieving righteousness by our obedience in a way that satisfies God's standard is utterly impossible. Welcome to The Word Unleashed with Tom Pennington. Tom is pastor-teacher at Countryside Bible Church in Southlake, Texas. Hello there, I'm Bill Wright, and today Tom continues his current series in Romans 9 and 10 with part 7 of Human Responsibility. What does it mean to proclaim that Jesus is Lord? Well, through the history of the Christian church, many have gone to their death for making such a bold claim. At the heart of this claim is where true saving faith resides. You must renounce all your ways and come under the Lordship of Christ. In Romans 10, the Apostle Paul teaches that all people must come to Christ on these terms, and we as Christians have embraced this truth by faith. In today's message, the Apostle Paul shows the gospel message is not merely words, but a commitment from the heart to a life centered upon Jesus Christ as Lord. Let's join Tom now as he opens God's Word here on The Word Unleashed. I think you understand that the Romans, that is the Roman Empire and the Roman leaders, regularly persecuted Christians. And, and they even put them to death. And they did so primarily because the, the Christians made one simple confession. Just one. And that is Jesus is Lord. In fact, we're told of one of the earliest martyrs of the Christian church around the year 155 AD, Polycarp, who was a disciple of the Apostle John, probably the last living person who had interacted with John and been discipled by him. Polycarp was also a leader of the church at Smyrna, one of the seven churches addressed by our Lord in the book of Revelation. Polycarp was arrested and brought before the Roman consul, and the consul demanded that Polycarp publicly confess with an oath, Caesar is Lord, Caesar is kurios. This was because Christians regularly confessed Jesus as kurios, and so to test their loyalty, Christians were made to say this, as were all the Roman citizens. Polycarp refused, and the consul said to him this, I have wild beasts, and if you refuse, I will throw you to them. Polycarp answered, send for them. The consul said, if, you're, if you despise the wild beasts, I will send you to the fire. Swear, and I will release you. Cursed, curse the Christos, curse the Christ. Then came Polycarp's famous reply. He said this, 86 years I have served Christ, and he has done me no wrong. How then can I blaspheme my king who has saved me? Bring what you will. In the passage that we come to today, Paul reminds the Christians living in Rome, ironically, that at the heart of true saving faith lies that same simple, far-reaching confession, the confession that you and I must make as well, that Jesus is Lord. 
Now, just to remind you of the context, in Romans chapters 9 through 11, Paul answers one key question, as we have seen over the last number of weeks. That question is this, why have so many of God's chosen people, Israel, rejected their Messiah and his gospel? And as I've shared with you, this wasn't just an academic question. Because if in some way God had been unfaithful to his promises to his Old Testament people, Israel, then how could the first century Christians be sure that all those wonderful gospel promises in Romans 8 were going to be true for them? How could they be sure that God would be faithful to those promises? Paul's first answer to the question is, the reality of divine election in chapter 9, verses 6 through 29, and we looked at that in in great detail. We're now studying his second answer to that question, and it's the reality of human responsibility. This section begins in chapter 9, verse 30, runs all the way through chapter 10, verse 21. And the basic point of this section is this. When people hear the gospel but don't believe it, including the Jewish people, They are personally responsible. Now, what what are the primary factors that contribute to human responsibility for not believing the gospel? There are several of them. We're working our way through them. So far, we have seen that the first primary factor involved is a failure to understand the purpose of God's law. This is the end of chapter 9, chapter 9, verses 30 to 33. The Jewish people and other religious people who are exposed to the Scripture often don't believe in Christ because they they completely misunderstand the purpose of God's law. A second reason where we find ourselves now, a, a second factor in human responsibility for failing to believe the gospel, is a simple unwillingness, an unwillingness to accept salvation God's way, to accept salvation by faith alone. That's the message of chapter 10, verses 1 through 15. Now, last time we looked at at part of the reason there is that unwillingness to accept salvation by faith alone is because of a simple, abysmal ignorance of the way of faith. And that's the point of the first four verses. We noted that there Paul says in verse 3, not knowing not knowing about the way of faith. Now, that doesn't mean that they had no exposure to this message. That's the whole point of of this chapter is to say they they did hear the gospel, but they didn't respond. So, they didn't know in the sense that they gained no saving understanding from that gospel when they heard it. And in that way, they were abysmally ignorant of the way that God Himself had ordained. Now that brings us today to verses 5 through 8 and to the diametrical opposite of faith. As Paul explains further why people don't accept God's way, salvation by faith alone, he says it's because they are so committed to the opposite way. They're so committed to the diametrical opposite of faith. Let's read it together. Romans chapter 10 Verses 5 through 8, you follow along. For Moses writes that the man who practices the righteousness which is based on law shall live by that righteousness. But the righteousness based on faith speaks as follows. 
Do not say in your heart, who will ascend into heaven, that is to bring Christ down, or who will descend into the abyss, that is to bring Christ up from the dead. But what does it say? The word is near you, in your mouth and in your heart. That is the word of faith which we are preaching. Now, in these verses, as throughout this entire book, Paul contrasts two radically different approaches to trying to gain a right standing or status before God. And in the end, these are the only two ways that anyone can seek to be right with God. In verse 5, you see the righteousness based on law. In verse 6, the righteousness based on faith. That's it. Those are the only two possible approaches by which any one of us can seek to be made right with God. It's either a righteousness based on law or a righteousness based on faith. Now, both of these approaches are referred to in the Old Testament. So Paul here quotes two passages from the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Old Testament, to illustrate and to explain and to contrast them. So let's look at them. The first way to try to be right with God, and and here is the diametrical opposite of faith, is the righteousness based on law. We see it in verse 5. For Moses writes that the man who practices the righteousness which is based on law shall live by that righteousness. Now that expression, the righteousness which is based on law, is literally in the Greek text, the righteousness out of law. The righteousness out of law. In other words, this is the righteousness that has as its source the law. In other words, this first kind of righteousness is a kind of right standing before God that is based on my own obedience to God's law. That's what he's saying. This is works righteousness. This is righteousness based on my own effort, my own merit, my own abilities. In fact, notice in verse 3, as we saw before, Paul calls it their own righteousness. Now, in verse 5, Paul quotes from Leviticus chapter 18, verse 5. Here's what that passage says. You shall keep my statutes and my judgments, and then listen to this. This is the part he quotes, by which... A man may live if he does them. It's not talking about living in a sense of day-to-day, but in, in a spiritual sense, in an eternal sense. A man may live if he does them. That, that's, by the way, the basic principle of all law. If you want to have a right standing before a king on the basis of his law and continue to live before him, you have to keep all his law. I mean, this is true even in our day. We're, we're not used to kings, obviously, but this is true at a very practical level. I mean, just think of it this way. Imagine on the way home, a police officer pulls you over. Now, I'm just speaking theoretically, but let's say that happens. Try telling that police officer, officer, listen, I know I was speeding, but did you notice all the rest of the things I was doing right? I was still in my lane. And here, look, all of my lights on my vehicle are working. And, you know, when I 
past that guy, I used my blinker. Isn't that enough? The only thing I didn't do was stay within the speed limit. Try doing the same thing with God. Try saying to God, God, I kept more of your law than I broke, which is what most people think they're going to say at the judgment. Which, by the way, that isn't true in and of itself. You understand that you and I have never kept God's law in a way that meets his standard? Not one single moment of your life or mine. Why is that? Because what's the standard? The standard is you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, and you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Anybody want to stand up and say, I have done that every moment of my life? Of course not. In fact, anybody want to stand up and say they have done that perfectly one moment of their lives? None of us have. None of us have met that standard. You see, what Paul is really implying here in verse 5 is the Jewish people didn't take the law of God seriously enough. That was the problem. It wasn't enough to keep it pretty well. The law demanded complete, perfect obedience. To live by it, you have to keep it all. Deuteronomy 27, 26. Cursed is he who does not confirm the works of this law by doing them. And Paul expands on that a little bit in Galatians chapter 3, verse 10, where he says, For as many as are of, that is, who rely on the works of the law as a way to to make themselves acceptable to God, they're under a curse. Listen, if your plan is to do the best you can and someday stand before God and say, God, you know, I, I did the best I could. I worked hard. I tried to obey you. If you think that's going to cut it, Paul says, you're under a curse. For it is written, cursed is everyone who does not, listen to this, abide by all things written in the book of the law to perform them. James 2, verses 10 and 11 says, whoever keeps the whole law, if it were theoretically possible for you to keep Everything God has commanded and yet stumble in one point, he has become guilty of all. For he who said, do not commit adultery, also said, do not commit murder. Now, if you do not commit adultery, but you do commit murder, you become a transgressor of the law. Or to put it where Jesus put it, it's not enough that you didn't commit murder. Have you ever been angry with anyone in your heart? Or Maybe uh, you haven't committed adultery. I trust and hope you haven't. But have you ever lusted at anyone or about anyone in your heart? So understand this. Achieving righteousness by our obedience in a way that satisfies God's standard is utterly impossible. Paul's already said that. Go back to chapter 3. Chapter 3, verse 19 after he's indicted all mankind with sin, he says in Romans 3.19, now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, that's everyone. Some have the written law, others have the substance of the law written on their hearts, chapter 2. And the result is, every mouth is closed. You know, so many people think they're going to stand before God at the judgment and have something to say. 
Listen, if you enter the judgment without Jesus Christ, you will have absolutely nothing to say. Your mouth will be closed. And all the world has become accountable to God. Verse 20, because by the works of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight. For through the law comes the knowledge of sin. Go over to chapter 8, verse 7. Paul says the same thing. He says, he's talking here about unbelievers, and he says, the mind set on the flesh, that's an unbeliever's mind, is hostile toward God. For it does not subject itself to the law of God. And then he adds this, for it is not even able to do so. Even if you want it, you lack the the Greek word he uses there is ability, capacity, power. You don't have the power to obey God's law. You don't have the capacity. Verse 8, those who are in the flesh cannot. It's impossible. Please God. So trying to achieve a right standing before God on the basis of what we do is utterly impossible and it is to totally misunderstand God's law. That's what we saw at the end of chapter 9, where Paul says they missed the point. They missed the whole point of the law. So this first kind of righteousness, then, is my own righteousness, achieved by my own heroic, albeit feeble, efforts to to obey God. And this kind of righteousness will never make me right with God. It's impossible, because cursed is everyone who does not abide by all things written in the law to perform them. But there's another kind of righteousness back in Romans chapter 10, another way to seek to be right with God. Paul calls it, in verses 6 through 8, the righteousness based on faith. The righteousness based on faith. Now, Verse 6 introduces us to this other kind of righteousness. Notice he calls it the righteousness based on faith. That doesn't mean, by the way, that part of my righteousness is my faith. That's right back to works righteousness. No, he's saying this is the righteousness received by faith. It's Christ's righteousness. It's God's righteousness, and specifically, it is the righteousness of Jesus Christ received by faith. It is as we learned earlier in the book of Romans, a gift of God's grace. Now, in verses 6 through 8, in explaining this kind of righteousness, Paul quotes two Old Testament passages. I say quotes, he really paraphrases them. He uses some liberty here in quoting them under the inspiration of the Spirit. The two passages are Deuteronomy 9.4, and really just the first few words of verse 6 include this, or the quote he uses, and then the rest of it is from Deuteronomy 30, verses 12 to 14. So let's look at how Paul uses this passage or these passages to help us understand this righteousness based on faith. Now, first of all, Paul tells us what the way of faith does not say, verse 6. But the righteousness based on faith speaks as follows. Do not say in your heart, here's, here's Faith says, don't think like this. Do not say in your heart, who will ascend into heaven, that is to bring Christ down, or who will descend into the abyss, that is to bring Christ up from the dead. Now, Paul personifies this righteousness that's based on faith, and it's speaking. What you have here is a person who's trying to gain righteousness. And he asks, how can I get it? 
Do I need to do something great? Do I need to go into heaven? Do I need to descend into the abyss? That is, in this context, the grave or death, as Paul makes it clear. Now, in the Old Testament, these expressions to, to ascend into heaven or descend into the abyss, or as it is in Deuteronomy, into the, you know, into the farthest parts of the sea, these expressions had become proverbial for what was humanly impossible. That's the point. This righteousness that was Paul's message says you don't need to do those things. Jesus Christ has already done both. Notice what he says. You don't need to travel to heaven because in the incarnation, Christ came down from heaven. And you don't need to descend into the grave because Jesus in his death already descended into the grave. You know what he's really saying? He's saying this. Listen, to achieve a right standing before God, you don't need to do the impossible because Christ already has. And besides, if you look at the two passages he quotes from Deuteronomy 9.4 and Deuteronomy 30, you find that this righteousness we're talking about is not our righteousness at all. Deuteronomy 9.4 says this, Do not say in your heart, because of my righteousness, the Lord has brought me in to possess this land. It's not our righteousness. Instead, God must act in grace to save us. And earlier in Deuteronomy 30, that's exactly what Moses writes. Deuteronomy 30, verse 6, The Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your descendants. In other words, God is going to act in grace to give you a new heart. And because he gives you a new heart, you're going to love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul so that you may live. You see what comes first? The grace of God in acting to give you a new heart, to circumcise your heart. And because of that, you now love God. So it's, it's not my righteousness. I don't do something heroic in order to achieve it. That's the point of these verses. In Greek mythology, Hercules was one of the main characters, and Hercules was driven mad by Hera, the queen of the gods. You may remember this story if you've had any exposure to Greek mythology. And, and in his madness, he killed his son, his daughter, and his wife. This is Hercules. After recovering his sanity, he obviously deeply regretted his actions, and, and he traveled to Delphi to inquire of the oracle there how he could atone for his terrible sins and actions. That's Tom Pennington here on The Word Unleashed with part seven of his series, Human Responsibility. Tom will have part eight for you on our next program. Join us then. Well, Tom, what are practical ways that we as Christians can apply Paul's teaching in Romans 10? You know, Bill, I think the first and most important way is that we should be overwhelmingly grateful that we are no longer pursuing our own righteousness but rather that we have been given by the grace of God alone the righteousness of Jesus Christ through our faith in Him. We should celebrate that and give Him thanks often. 
But at the same time, we should also seek to live a life that's consistent with that gospel that we believed. If we've really been transformed by the grace of Jesus Christ, then we need to live in light of that. If we've been declared righteous before God, been given a righteous standing before God, then that should be followed by a desire for real and personal righteousness. Thanks, Tom. And friend, in a world filled with great uncertainty, God's Word and the promises it contains offer wonderful encouragement to believers in Jesus Christ. We pray that the ministry of the Word Unleashed is playing a prominent role to that effect, and we'd love to hear how that works in your life and personal walk with the Lord. Write to us, won't you? Our address is listeners at the word unleashed.org. Again, that's listeners at the word unleashed.org. Or you can call us at 1-877-577-WORD. And remember to connect with us on social at the word unleashed. We also invite you to visit the word unleashed.org, where you'll find other resources, including additional series from the word unleashed. That's the word unleashed.org. You know, the Word Unleashed is made possible because of the prayers and financial gifts of individuals just like you. Please consider partnering with us. You can find out how to do that by visiting thewordunleashed.org. Again, that's thewordunleashed.org. And now for Tom Pennington and the entire team, I'm Bill Wright. Thanks for listening to The Word Unleashed, exalting God's glory, explaining God's truth. Thank you.